If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we are in the middle of a series on the study of 1 John. We've been um, just digging into this beautiful book of the Bible and seeing what God has to say to us. And already we've been through some just awesome material we have um, seen as John has kind of opened our eyes to the character and the nature of God. We um, see what our good and right response to those things is as his people. Last week, we talked about some really interesting concepts that he brings to light and how we are to understand those things and how we are to react to those things. And in fact, if you have missed any of these messages, I would just encourage you to go to our website or go to our YouTube channel and get caught up just so that we can truly dig into the word of God together. And um, today actually is the midway point of this series, which means a couple of different things. Um, Number one, that means that we still have plenty of work ahead of us. We still have plenty of amazing things to dig into and understand and apply to our lives, and I'm so excited to do that. But since we are at the midway point, I wanted to just um, refresh you guys on what the objective is of this series. I don't want us to go any further without just being reminded of what exactly it is that we're trying to accomplish through the course of this series. And so in week one, I laid three different things before you guys that I hope and I pray that we see in our lives. And the first one is this, that as we study this book, that we might be able to see Christ more clearly. Like as we dig into his word and as we begin to see who he is and and what he has done, that we could truly like feel that in our hearts. So that number two, we can reflect him better. That as we get a clearer picture of who he is and, and what he has done, his character and his nature, that we can truly reflect him everywhere that we go. And then the third thing is that as we dig into this, that we might fall in love with the word of God that as we study his word and we learn new things and we see it from different angles, that we would fall head over heels in love with the word of God. And I have to tell you, even though we're only halfway through, I am so unbelievably encouraged about what God is is doing. I'm so unbelievably encouraged. In fact, this past week in our life group on Thursday night, um, we, we had about 14 or 15 of us. And typically um, in our life group, we kind of just hang out and we'll eat some good food and we'll kind of play some games and just have some fun. But Thursday, we, we just got to talking about what God is doing in and around us. We just got to talking about the amazing things that God is doing in our lives. And I'm telling you, it was beautiful to see as person by person just poured out their heart about how God is changing them about how God is showing himself to be real and powerful in their lives. And as people were talking, I just kind of took a few steps back and I began to realize that these things are in play in our lives, that people are falling in love with the word of God and it is changing their lives. That, That people are going out into the world and reflecting him, being light everywhere that they go to the people around them. This stuff is happening. I'm telling you, we are making progress. We are seeing movement. And I want to continue to give everything we have to this so that we can see what God truly wants to do in and through his people. That's what I want to continue to see. And so before we even move into today's message, I want us to just stop and pray that God would continue to move, 
that God would continue to speak, that he would continue to prepare and equip us for what he has for us through this series and well beyond. And so if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes, and I invite you to join me in this. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would continue to stir and move in the hearts of your people. I pray that the work that you have begun would truly be completed. I pray that you would prepare and equip us for what is ahead of us. Only you know what is to come. And I pray that you would empower us and embolden us to always be about your business, to always keep our eyes set on you, that we would not be a people who are lukewarm or casual about you or your mission, but that we would give everything we have to see the difference that you want to make in and through and among us. And I pray this morning that you would speak into our hearts and minds in only the way that you can. Only you can meet us exactly where we're at. Only you can say the perfect thing that we need to hear today. And I pray that you would speak in that powerful way. And in response, we give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. All the credit is yours. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to turn the page to, to chapter 3 of 1 John, and we are going to cover the first three verses of this particular chapter, and we're going to break it down and see exactly what God is trying to speak into our hearts. Just as a really quick side note, in case you are curious, um, at some point throughout this series, I believe we will cover every single scripture in this book. Okay? We don't necessarily have the time to, to dig completely into everyone, but we will at least touch on every single verse in this book. And the reason I want to call that out is because we made our way through chapter 2 very quickly. And so you're going to see in the coming weeks, we're going to go back to some of these things in the proper context. And so I just want you to be aware that that will indeed happen. Okay, So for today, let's dig into chapter 3. Let's see what we have to learn and what God wants to speak into our lives. So if you have your Bibles, your Bible apps, we'll put this on the screen for you as well. Let's read through this together. Verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, we're going to hit the pause button on this for a moment, and we'll continue on in a little bit. But there are a few things in here that I want to make sure we understand so that we can walk in this the proper way. And I absolutely love how John begins this chapter because before he's gonna lay anything else in front of us, before he's gonna point to anything else, the first thing he says is, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. I, I want you to just stop and I want you to look. I want you to gaze upon the love of the Father. In fact, I want you to just refresh your heart and mind. I want it to just wash over you how great the love of God truly is. Before he says anything else, this is what he wants us to realize. And I love that he starts this way because I wholeheartedly believe that this is something we need to be much more attentive to in our lives. I think far more often than we do, we need to remind ourselves, we need to set our eyes upon just how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. 
In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to spend an entire message just breaking down the love of God, what that means for us, how we can understand it, how we can respond to that. But for the purposes of this message, I wanna just kind of give you a high-level perspective of this particular topic. And I'm actually gonna do this by way of a quote that I read throughout my studies that just, it really spoke into my heart. So I wanna read this for you, and I want you to really lean in and think about what is being said. This is Alexander McLaren. 19th century minister, this is what he says about the love of God. He says, we're called upon to come with our little vessels to measure the contents of the great ocean, to plumb with our short lines the infinite abyss, and not only to estimate the quantity, but the quality of that love, which in both respects surpasses all our means of comparison and conception. Properly speaking, we can do neither the one nor the other. We can no more behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us than we can look with undimmed eyes right into the middle of the sun. But all that we can do, John would have us do, that is look and ever look at the working of that love till we form some not wholly inadequate idea of it. I love that so much because what he's trying to get us to understand is just how great just how vast the love of God is. In fact, he begins to show us that it's so great that we can't even begin to comprehend it. We can't wrap our minds around just how great this love is. And so all that we are left to do is to look and ever look, continue to, to gaze at this amazing love that he has for us and what that means for our lives. And in fact, this is what John goes on to say next. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, that we would be called his children. Now, this is a concept that we see over and over again in the New Testament, and it's something that we very much need to understand. But the first thing that John is going to point us to is that the idea of being a child of God has a direct tie to his love for us. In other words, his love is, is the source. His love is the origin of our status as his children. Without his love, we could not have this relationship with him. But what we read as we go on to the rest of this verse is that the other thing that John is gonna show us is that there's a distinction in play here between what he would call the children of God and the world. There's, there's a line that he seems to draw here. In fact, he says, for this reason, the world does not know us. There's, there's a distinction here that we need to understand. And so there are a few things that I want to talk about as it relates to that distinction. And the first thing is this. What John wants us to understand is that while in some sense, every human being can be considered a child of God because we are all made in his image, we're all covered by his common grace. While that is true, what we see consistently throughout scripture is that there is a higher meaning of this phrase, child of God, that is only given to those who truly put their faith in Christ. This is the distinction that he makes. So in this context, when John says children of God, he's clearly not talking about all of his creation. He's not talking about every human being. There's a specific people that he is referencing. And we see this over and over again throughout his writings. Let me give you a few examples, starting in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. He says this, But as many as received him, that is Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As many as have received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And these are the ones that he says are born of God. And in fact, he continues to talk about this concept in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Watch what he says very simply, but very profoundly. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Son of God came in the flesh, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, whoever believes this is born of God and therefore is his child. The first thing that he shows us is that to be a child of God is to be distinct from the world in terms of our identity. We put our identity in him. We put our faith in him. This is who we are. But the second thing that he shows us is that being a child of God means to be distinct from the world in terms of our devotion. Let me explain to you what I mean when I say that. When John speaks of the Father's love to begin chapter three, watch what he's directly contrasting in chapter two, verse 15. Listen carefully to what he says. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He draws a very clear distinction between the love of the Father and a love for the world. In fact, he says, if you love the world or the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And vice versa, if the love of the Father is in you, you will not love those things. That's how this works. Now, it's important to note that when John uses the word love, the definition of this word is to set your heart upon something. That's what he's talking about. And I wanna make that clear because what John is not saying is, is that we can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. He's not saying that we can't enjoy these things in this world. What he's saying is you cannot set your heart upon these things. You cannot allow it to capture your heart. That's the problem. And we see this so consistently throughout the Bible. Over and over again, we see that people far too easily fall in love with the creation as opposed to the creator. And, and it's, it's a matter of the heart. That's what we begin to understand as we read through scriptures. It's a matter of the heart. It's what's going on on the inside. In fact, let me give you this analogy that will maybe help you understand the distinction. I want you to get in your mind your, your child or your closest friend, whoever you would say is closest to you in this life. I want you to get that person in your mind right now. And I want you to imagine that you find the perfect gift for that individual. I mean, you, you get the gift that you know is gonna blow them away. They're gonna be so surprised. They're gonna be so full of joy and you cannot wait. So you wrap this gift and let's say Christmas morning comes around and you lay it before them. And as they begin to unwrap this gift, you, you can see the light turn on in their eyes as they begin to understand what it is. And I want you to picture that as they understand what that gift is, that they pick it up and they wrap their arms around that gift and they begin to, to cry because it's just the best gift that they've ever gotten. Now, I wanna offset that with the same exact picture, but instead this time as they open that gift and understand what it is, they drop it and they come running to you and they wrap their arms around you and tears flow down their face as they understand that you love them so much that you would get them the perfect gift. Yes. 
Do you see the difference in the heart? See, as children of God, there's stuff that we should think differently about. There's a, there's a different perspective that we should have. There's a different priority that we are to have. We are to be distinct in our devotions. Now, listen, that is not to say that we are to avoid the world. That is not to say that we are to be self-righteous towards the world. In fact, that would go directly against the life and the teaching of Christ. Amen. So let's make that abundantly clear. But here's the thing. If you look at the pursuits and the pleasures of the Christ follower, it should be monumentally different than the pursuits and the pleasures of the world follower. You should see a clear distinction between the two of those things. And so here's what I began to do as I was studying this topic. I just started to write out a list of the things that the world cares about versus the things that we should care about as his children. I started to kind of make a list. I started thinking about wealth and, and pleasure and personal gain. But, but as I was making that list, I, I stopped for a moment because I began to realize that the real distinction is, once again, a matter of the heart. What I began to realize is that the distinction is the motivating factor behind these things. Because the motivating factor for the world is always self. I want to get everything that I can get. I want to set myself up for the brightest future. It's all about me. The motivating factor for the child of God is always and forever him. It is always to please him, to glorify him. That is who we are. We are distinct in our identity and we are distinct in our devotions. That's what it means to be a child of God. Now, I wanna, I wanna take a few steps back for just a moment because I don't want us to miss something that is very important with this concept. And that is John calls us children of God. And sometimes when we read things like this in scripture, we, we need to just stop and begin to think about what that really means for us. Like sometimes we just need to slow down and go, whoa, 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 what, what did he just say? I'm a child of God. He is my heavenly father. Sometimes we just need to allow that to wash over us. Like if you're gonna put pride in anything, if you're gonna be confident in anything, let it be that you are a child of the living God. Sometimes I think as we read through scripture, we look at it in such a transactional way. Like we read words like justified and sanctified and, and we kind of make it transactional. I know sometimes when I'm studying, I do that. But sometimes we forget that the best part of all of this, the best part of being a child of God is, is the experience of it. You know what I mean? That the best part of it is that we now have new life through him that we now have a new family with him. That's the best part. The words really don't mean all that much if we don't experience it. So that's why sometimes as we read through things like this in scripture, we just need to be reminded of what that means. In fact, if you think about being his child, think about what that means for your relationship with him. Think about the, the intimacy that you get to have with him, the free access to him as your father. Think about what that means for how he looks at you and how he views you. Sometimes we're so hard on ourselves, we forget that he's looking at us as his children. Think about what that means for how you can trust him, the ways that he's gonna protect you and lead and guide you. We need to be reminded of what this means for us. And we need to make sure that it's a part of our experience. In fact, Alexander McLaren says this about John at this point in his letter. I love this so much. He says, he turns doctrine into experience. He is not content with merely having the thought in his creed, but his heart grips it. 
and his whole nature responds to the great truth. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. What would it look like in your life? What might happen in your life if your heart would grip and your whole nature would respond to the truth that you are a child of God? What might that look like for your perspective? What might that look like for your ministry? Think about the ways that that might change who we are. And in fact, this is why John immediately goes on to say this, that we would be called children of God and such we are. He, he can't go any further without just declaring, this, this is who I am. I'm, I'm his child. He is my heavenly father. This is the life and the existence that I now get to live. This is who we are. This is where we find our confidence. We are children of God. Now, once he lays out this concept in, in this beautiful way and begins to show us the distinctions that lie within, he goes on to verse number two. And so let's read this together. He says, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So, so here is what John is doing. He's taken a very interesting approach. He says, now we are children of God. In other words, this, this is our current state. This is who we are. We are loved. We are cared for. We are forever a part of his family. But then he says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So John makes a really interesting turn here from talking about our current state to our future state. What, what, what our future will look like, what that future existence entails. And as it relates to this subject, he says, it has not appeared. In other words, this is so interesting, but John, even as a direct apostle of Christ, freely admits, I, I don't know what we will be in the future. I don't know what lies on the other side of this existence. I'm not really sure what picture to paint for you guys. The apostle John says, I don't know what we will be. And this is one of these subjects in scripture when we don't get the full picture of what it's going to look like or what it means. And I think it's important that we understand how we are to respond to things like this. Because I think if we're too reactionary, when we read things like this and we're not getting the full scope, I think initially we can be really confused by that. We, we can think to ourselves, am I supposed to like be filling in the blanks? Am I supposed to read between the lines somehow? Like, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing with this. If we don't get confused, we get frustrated, right? Because we just want to know what it's going to look like. We want to know the truth of the matter. But there's a famous quote that says this on the subject that I think is so beautiful. It says, let us be thankful that we do not know, for the ignorance is the sign of the greatness. For the ignorance is the sign of the greatness. Because see, there are many high-reaching things that we see in scripture. There are many things that we just, we can't fully comprehend. Aspects of, of God and who he is, aspects even of his creation. There are just things that we can't fully wrap our arms around. But what we learn about these things is that the reason that we can't understand them many times is because they're simply too great to comprehend. They're, they're too amazing for us to really imagine. In fact, we started at the beginning by talking about how great and how vast the love of God is that we can't truly wrap our minds around it. And so the good news with this is the fact that we know next to nothing about what we will be in the future should likely point us to the indescribable, unfathomable nature of what that future entails. 
man, this is something that should comfort us. This is something that should excite us because it's too amazing for us to even imagine. And yet on the flip side, here's what I love so much about John's perspective. He starts by laying out the unknowable nature of this topic. He talks about how it's too great to even imagine. But then he stops and he says this, here's what I do know. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John says, I don't know all the other stuff. Here's what I do know. We will be like him and we will see him just as he is. It's almost like John can read our minds. It's like he's, he's trying to tell us, hey, all of the rumors that you've heard about this, all of the things you've tried to dream up, all the things that you've tried to imagine, honestly, they don't even matter. Here's what matters. You will see him and you will be like him. In fact, the way he says this, it's really interesting. It's almost like when we finally get to see Christ, something's gonna click. It's like everything will make sense. We'll finally begin to comprehend the beauty and the love and the grace that is found in him. Guys, listen, this is the pinnacle of everything that lies ahead of us, that we will see him face to face. We will be with him for eternity. This is what lies ahead of us as his children. Now he ends this section of scripture in verse number three by saying this, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here's what John has done through these three verses. He has started by talking about our current state, that we are children of God, that we are loved by him, that we are sealed in him. He then talks about the future ahead of us, what we will be, that that we will see him, that we will be like him. And he says here, what bridges the gap between the two of those things is the simple but beautiful concept of hope. This is, this is what we have as children of God, is hope. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. As I was studying this week, I, I was really, really struggling with how to wrap my arms around this concept. I, I, I couldn't seem to like grab hold of what God was really trying to show us through this. And so when in doubt, go to the word of God. And as actually this morning, I began to dig into this concept of hope. I learned a few things about it as it relates to scripture. There are two Greek words that are often translated as hope. And those words are used 84 times in the New Testament, which is a lot. Okay, that's, that's more than wisdom, more than kindness, even more than joy. This is a very common word that we see in the New Testament. And, and here's an interesting note that I found. Of the 84 times that it's used in the New Testament, 79 of those are after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's like all of a sudden, after the death and resurrection of Christ, all of a sudden, this concept of hope came onto the scene. But I want to read you some of the things that scripture tells us about this concept. And I'm going to go through quite a bit of them. So even if you have to close your eyes and just kind of ponder these things, I want you to realize how important, how profound this is for your life and your perspective. Here are a few things that we read. In Romans chapter eight, we read that we are to hope in what we do not see. And this hope is what saves us. In Romans chapter 12, it says, we are to rejoice in hope even in times of suffering and tribulation. In Hebrews 10, it says, we are to hold fast to hope without wavering because God is faithful. 
Romans chapter 15 says that we were given the word of God so that we might have hope. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Romans 5 says, because of the love of God, hope never disappoints. Romans 15 shows us that we serve a God of hope. 1 Peter 1 says that Jesus Christ is our living hope. And Romans 15 says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound in hope. Over and over and over again, the word of God points us to hope. As people of God, this is something that should be evident in our lives. This is something that, that should be seen throughout our actions, throughout our words. Hope, listen to me, hope that, that there is a purpose for whatever you're going through. Hope that, that there's a way to get through it. Hope that there's a, a brighter future ahead of you that so far surpasses what you might be going through right now. We are to have hope because here's the thing. Just because we are children of God doesn't mean we won't experience pain in this life. Just because we are children of God doesn't mean that we're not going to experience heartache and suffering. In fact, scripture says God disciplines those that he loves. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Here is the truth of the matter. We can expect pain. We can expect suffering. We can expect weeping. We can expect anguish. We can expect these things. So here's what John says. Fix your hope on him. Fix it on him. Here's my honest question to you. As you survey your life and as you think through your thoughts and your actions and your perspective, where have you been putting your hope? Have you been putting your hope in the things of this world? Have you been putting your hope in wealth and success that that will hopefully sustain you? Where are you putting your hope? Or here's another question. Do you feel, feel hopeless? If you're being honest, I don't feel like I have hope. I wanna read this last scripture to you guys because I believe that somebody needs to hear this. I want you to lean into this with everything you have. Romans 15, 13 says, now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would highlight that. I, I would make that the wallpaper of your phone. I would put that on your computer at work. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit within you. John, from beginning to end of this letter, 
will continuously point us to him. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're holding on to, he will continue over and over again to tell us the answer is found in him. And so if you feel hopeless, or if you realize you are putting your hope in the wrong things, I urge you, I plead with you right now that you would take that hope and that you would lay it at his feet. That you would say, I trust you. I'm putting my hope in you and you alone. You are bigger, you are greater. close our eyes. Heavenly Father, right now I pray that that you would stir in the hearts and minds of your people right now. I believe that you're wanting to speak to somebody, Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would help us to focus in right now, right now, to lean in right now to what you're trying to tell us. I pray that you would break through every bit of doubt. I pray that you would break through every bit of fear. I pray that you would break through every bit of anxiety and depression. Break through it right now, God. And enlighten the hearts of your people with hope. Hope that is set on you and you alone that regardless of what things might look like right now, regardless of the fact that there's no way we could make sense of what we're going through, that our hearts would be full of hope, that we would fix our hope on you and you alone through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. In the name of Jesus Christ. I pray, amen.